Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Muni Jensen here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Today we have a personal note to share later, so stay tuned till the end of this podcast. But today we will focus on the so-called fence sitters, a term coined by our own guest, Matthias Spector, who used it to describe countries that don't take sides in the global power clash, sitting out the military, economic, and political clashes for influence of the big world powers. Today we'll take a deep dive in trying to understand why these countries are choosing or not, to take sides in this increasingly polarized world. Mooney, in this geopolitical podcast, we've covered so many topics, but the truth is that there's one topic that seems to permeate everything in the last six years, and a lot of what we have discussed has been framed under the current global landscape, the tense triangle of China, Russia, and the U.S. And this reality became even more obvious after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, whose countries were expected, almost forced, to take sides. This worked in Europe and the U.S., which both immediately presented a common front and later developed some cracks, but it's basically a common front. But others hesitated to take a hard line to protect their own internal agenda. The uncommitted countries include countries like Indonesia, large democracies like Brazil, along with many African countries who've seen their economies and unfortunately some of their personal pockets grow massively thanks to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And this trend, the trend of not aligning, seems to have grown. It has, Peter. And I do think that it's a position that makes a lot of sense for many practical reasons for countries. Many are geostrategically located so that they cannot afford to choose. With limited resources with which to influence global politics, developing countries want to be able to quickly adapt their foreign policies to unpredictable circumstances. There's China, a huge creditor and market, so important to developing countries. There's Russia with its natural resources, oil and gas, military strength and intelligence services that provide help to many governments, all things critical for many countries' survival. And the U.S. has, of course, a hugely important consumer market, and it's a huge trading partner for many. And it remains, like it or not, the world's dominant cultural force. So it is also a beacon of democracy, and it is still a key provider of advanced military hardware and development support to many countries. So many of them would falter if they were to choose one side over the other. They must remain non-aligned and are often skillful in playing one major power against the other. But, of course, the West, tied to its own old-fashioned Cold War mentality, continues to use the are you with me or against me as a litmus test. And this may not work for too long, even more so as global issues like immigration, climate change, disease management, and new supply chain realities break down the bipolar model that suits the U.S. so well. And the U.S., of course, is in the middle of a very domestic struggle that will weaken the footprint abroad. I don't know, Muni. I, I, I have to say, I, I think I disagree with that. There's just no space in the world for countries that want to sit on the fence. It's unrealistic to think like a country like Nigeria or even India you know, with a with a president that believes himself to be a 
you know, global power broker could continue to hold just a neutrality, a sense of neutrality in today's world. The world is dividing. It's dividing technologically. It's dividing politically. It's dividing militarily. And if there's any doubts about this, just ask Emmanuel Macron. He's a Western president who tried to be a power broker between Russia and the U.S. And that didn't work out so well for him because the non-position is just increasingly sustainable. Hedging inevitably involves disappointing allies when national interests are at stake. Look at Turkey, where President Erdogan publicly affirmed support for Ukraine, sent humanitarian aid, but at the same time, he avoids being drawn into the conflict despite Turkey being a NATO member. How long is that sustainable? Erdogan recognizes that Turkey can't afford to alienate Russia because of Moscow's influence over major areas of interest to Ankara, including the Caucasus, Nagorno-Karabakh, the enclave in Armenia and Azerbaijan that they're fighting over in Syria. And, but increasingly, Chinese technology is going to be shunned by the West. And my point is that hedging positions can't last. But look, let's hear from Taya about the history of the non-aligned movement. And does it have anything to do with what's happening today? Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So this issue of hedging or fence-sitting is really not new at all, and there's such a thing as the non-aligned movement, which is a forum of 120 countries that are not formally aligned with or against any major power bloc. And after the United Nations, it's actually the largest grouping of states worldwide. And the movement was founded in 1961 by Yugoslav President Tito, Indian President Nehru, and Egyptian President Nasser and originated in the aftermath of the Korean War as an effort by some of these countries to counterbalance this rapid bipolarization of the world between uh, the Soviet Union and, and the U.S. And throughout the Cold War, these non-aligned countries were often able to leverage U.S.-Soviet competition for their own ends without bending to pressures from each side. But today's world is vastly different. It's no longer a bipolar world where many countries are, you know, fighting colonialism. Well, you know, in the historical sense of that word, at least. But we live in this tripolar world. And Peter, you talked about it. And it's rapidly changing technology, which is really affecting every aspect of daily life. So in that sense, it's really hard to compare today's fence-sitters to the original non-aligned movement, as, as some, some experts are trying to do. So here's my take. Today's hedgers value freedom of action, which allows them to move quickly in case of changing winds, and that's why they may form partnerships of convenience to pursue specific foreign policy objectives, but they're not forming alliances based on shared principles or values, and this is what differentiates today's hedgers from non-aligned countries during the Cold War. And amid the bipolar competition of that era, non-aligned developing states, they rallied around the shared identity in favor of justice justice, equality, the end of colonial rule. But in contrast today, hedging is about avoiding the pressure to choose between China, Russia, and the United States. So let me know what you think by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Taya, thanks for that. I think that's an interesting point. And let's turn to our guest, Matthias Spector. He's the founder and professor at the School of International Relations at Fundação Getúlio Vargas in Brazil, which is one of the preeminent learning institutions in Brazil. 
He specializes in climate change, politics, political violence, transnational repression, and international security in Latin America. He's the author of a series of books on U.S. policy towards the region in general and Brazil in particular. He's held visiting fellowships at LSE, King's College in London, the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, and the Council on Foreign Relations. Matias is a regular commentator on the politics and foreign affairs of Latin America and the developing world through outlets such as the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Foreign Affairs. He recently wrote a wonderfully provocative article on foreign affairs titled, In Defense of the Fence-Sitters, What the West Gets Wrong About Hedging. So let's get into that. Matias, welcome to Altamar. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a real pleasure. So this article, which has gotten a lot of play around the world about fence-sitters, so I'll, why don't we let you define what you, how you see fence-sitters? Who are these countries? What do they have in common? Why are they sitting on the fence? That's great. So if you take the view of the last 10 years in the international system, what we see is a transition away from unipolarity, from the time in which the United States was the sole great power in the system. And the effect that's had is that now that there are other centers of power, the strategic options of the rest of the world have changed. Countries, large developing countries, which in the past could only choose between joining the United States very fast or joining it very slowly or being recalcitrant, they now have the option of playing the United States off against other centers of power. Now, this comes with a lot of problems because the future is really uncertain today. So what the fence-seaters are is a bunch of countries from the developing world that perceive the world to be way too uncertain, and therefore, they don't want to take risks. They want to avoid risk-taking. So they don't want permanent alliances with the powers that be. They would rather keep their options open for maximum flexibility. That's what fence-sitting is today. But there is, a, there is indeed a power tripod here, China, Russia, and the U.S., those three countries are shaping the economic, the military, the political, the geostrategic landscape all over the world. So what are the implications for these fence-sitting countries of this sustained clash, this, this geopolitical hostility between these power tripod for the rest of the world? So that's great. You're absolutely right. One way to describe the world today is to say that it is multipolar in the sense that there are at least three major countries that have an awful lot of authority in different parts of the world. What the implication of this is, is very straightforward, Peter. Great powers, what they do is they create regional spheres of influence. They try to retain these spheres of influence and they try to prevent their peer competitors from developing their own spheres of influence. So the United States is now engaged in trying to deny China regional hegemony in Southeast Asia. And Russia is now trying to deny the United States hegemony in Eastern Europe. And these are the main battles of our times. So when the great powers do this, they compete against one another 
first of all, around regional spheres of influence, and then on everything from the space race to the WTO to management of the oceans. This is dangerous because it awakens the risk of war, which the rest of the world doesn't want, but it also presents an opportunity because it means that now these countries can try and secure some kinds of concessions from the great powers as they provide support for one of them or for the other. But again, that support is not going to be permanent. It's not going to be centered on alliances. It's going to be about managing risk. So let me just follow up on that. Like, what do you see as was it a, was it a better time when we were in a unipolar world? Was everything uh, more uh, certain? You knew where you were, et cetera, et cetera. Or I mean, it, the way you describe it, it sounds like everybody's hedging against risk one way or the other. May, was there a better time? Um, I think the answer is no. I mean, it depends on where you sit. For the United States, yes, there was a better time. The United States was the sole great power of the international system between around 1990 to around the mid-2000s. And if you're in the United States, if you're sitting in Washington, D.C., that was the best you could get in terms of the international system. When there are no other great powers, you don't need to worry too much about your own mistakes. You can be capricious. You can invade countries that are strategically irrelevant, for example, and spend trillions of dollars in that pursuit. Now, if you're the rest of the world, it's far trickier. Unipolarity was not peaceful if you sat elsewhere. Your range of choice is frank. So from the standpoint of the rest of the world now, there is more room for maneuver than there was 20 years ago. And this helps explain why when the West tells the rest, why on earth are you not complaining about the war in the Ukraine? Why on earth are you not trying to defeat Russia? The answer is, well, a strong Russia is terrible for the Ukrainians. It engenders a European world. But for the rest of the world, it creates the possibility of great power war, and it's very worrying, and everyone is worried about the prospects of nuclear exchanges, for example. But on the other hand, the other side of the coin is that it creates an international system that is more malleable than the international system was 20 years ago. So regions that have been increasingly on the fence, um, Africa and Latin America that have great economic ties to China, uh, they can really credit a lot of the taking people out of poverty in the past decades to investments from China. And also the reality that the U.S. is lagging in any type of reaction or, or engagement with those regions. What is the role of these developing fence sitters? It seems that they're in a lose-lose situation and that, that they really don't have a lot of choices on the table. Okay, so from the standpoint of the developing world, I think the situation now is one where choices are actually bigger than the choices were only a few years ago, because now you can court China and the United States and Russia. I mean, take, for example, the issue of the pandemic. When the pandemic struck, most countries in Latin America first got vaccines from Russia and China. 
it took the West a long time to be the provider of a global public good, such as vaccines. If you're an African leader, one of the things about the current international system that is not bad is that you get an awful lot of Chinese, not concessions, but Chinese investment in Africa, and Africa needs that investment very desperately. And the other thing I would say is that although, of course, fence seeding is prevalent in Latin America and in Africa, look at Southeast Asia. I mean, the Philippines and Indonesia, two of the most relevant Southeast Asian countries, they're going to be at the heart of US-China competition in Southeast Asia. These guys, they're trying to take advantage of the current situation. They're not picking sides. They are fence-eaters big time. I mean, Jokowi, the president of Indonesia, for goodness sake, you know, in the last year, he's the one person who managed to meet Biden, Zelensky, and Putin and try to secure concessions uh, as he goes along. So my sense is that from the standpoint of these countries, what they now see is a world of more option than, than what they had uh, only a few years ago. But what happens to democracy? So really, uh, we are cut on the lines of, of the power struggle where, you know, the, the level of democracy of at least two of these is so questionable. Does that not matter anymore? But it was questionable all along, right? The Philippines and Indonesia are third wave democracies like Brazil, like Mexico, like Turkey, like South Africa. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that these are competitive democracies. Can one say that they're overall less democratic than allies in the Western Front? Well, check out U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia or check out U.S. policy towards Eastern European countries that are far from being democratic. So the, the notion that the division between the West and the rest is one between democracy-loving countries and autocrats, I think doesn't really hold. We've talked about the benefits of uh, being fence-sitters, and, and in, earlier in the conversation, we had a little bit of a, of a different opinion on risk versus benefits. What are some of the risks that you see? So hedging your bets is only plausible as a strategic option as long as there is no direct confrontation between the great powers. When the great powers move towards conflict, countries need to choose. If they don't choose, they run the risk of being pushed coercively, brutally, by one great power or the other, or by many great powers at the same time. So this fence-seating story is a dominant strategy in the international system that we know today. But if the current situation deteriorates, and it, it deteriorates fast, then these countries will have to make choices. But my prediction is that they will resist making choices as long as they can. The reason being that it's all about their own definitions of the national interest. They are not worried about ideology. They don't believe the West has any moral superiority to the rest, they believe that Russia has conducted a brutal, illegal war 
but they also believe that the United States conducted a brutal illegal war in Iraq, but also supported a brutal illegal war in Yemen. So the big distinction for these countries is not ideological in any significant sense of the word. I think it's a great segue because I I want to put this into historical context because there was some discussions about comparing the current fence sitters with the non-aligned movement by by some experts and um you know I, I think you you disagree with that but I, I want to I want to ask you that question and you know the non-aligned movement founded in 1961 I did my little um, intro about that but it's a very different historical context and geopolitical world right right now, meaning the fence-sitters are in a very different situation. Why is that, and how do you compare those? Okay, so my argument about the fence-sitters today is that these are large developing countries that are looking at the international system, and they believe that their self-interest is best served by denying firm commitments to any of the major powers in the international system. They do not represent a coalition. They are not engaged in coalitional politics now. They do not share a common identity. This is very different from the non-aligned movement, which, you know, being funded in the early 60s, but harking back to the post-war era, you know, these had a shared identity and the identity was we're a collection of countries from the post-colonial world. And together, we will form a coalition in international organizations to fight for racial equality, for economic redistribution, and for the principle of self-determination. We don't find any of that today. If anything, these fence-seaters today are very divided. They're not together certainly not in the WTO, for example, but even in the UN General Assembly, it's not obvious that they can act together. So what we see today, I think, is not a coalition uh, in any sense. And I therefore hesitate to call the what we see now as a, you know, non-aligned movement 3.0. And just to follow up on that, I mean, we live in such a polarized world, whether it's globally or whether it's within countries themselves. I mean, just, you know, looking at politics within countries, it's, you know, completely polarizing. What would it take to get back to some sense of a coalition or some sense of unity that is based on shared values? Could that happen again? You know, with my political scientist hat, what I would say is that there's only one thing that can make countries unite, and that is a common threat. If these countries were to face a common threat, say, for example, if the United States, Russia, and China were to unite around new norms governing the global climate environmental regime, that could induce a, a counter reaction coming from the developing world. I don't see that happening now. And uh, part of the reason is that the United States and China in particular are moving so fast towards more confrontation that there's very little space for what you know political scientists call a concert of powers. But we know that in a multipolar system, you will only get stability if there is collusion between the great powers. In other words, 
if they cooperate, if they put together a concert, if they fail to do that, what you have is high instability. And in a context of high instability, you will find that developing countries will do what they must to deny permanent entanglement to any of the great parts of the world, because otherwise it becomes too risky for them. Matthias, I, I um, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm smiling uh, to myself because it sounds so convincing. But then I try to apply that model to, you know, it, it, if if you apply it to Ecuador and poor Ecuador, I, it's a country I love, but it, I, you know, it's a small country. It's, it's highly dependent on investment. I, I can see that. But if you apply this model to Turkey or India or or Brazil. It, it, it's, it seems hard to imagine that fence sitting is going to be a long-term possibility. I mean, you know, Turkey wants to be a NATO ally, but at the same time, a regional power with countries that are all bordered on Russia. India has a border dispute with China that, you know, gets hot and cold and hot and cold, but, it, you know, it, eventually it's going to, it's probably going to get hotter. And so it just seems hard to imagine that these countries can continue to pretend that um, I'm just going to, I'm going to uh, take from anybody that gives uh, and play each other, everybody off on each other when they have their own large regional ambitions. Great. I see the argument. Let me try to push back against it a little bit. Let's go one <laughs> please. Let's go one by one. Look at the case of Turkey. Turkey has clearly a problem with divided loyalties. On the one hand, as you rightly point out, it's a NATO ally and it needs to retain that for various reasons, not only to do with international security, but also the domestic political survival of the regime. And yet, Turkey cannot afford to alienate Russia because so many of Turkey's international problems, in particular its relationship with Nagorno-Karabakh and with Syria, depend on good working relationships with Moscow. So Turkey has very little choice but to play this game in ways that it doesn't commit to any of the sides, because the minute it does, it will be punished by the other side, and that will come at an enormous cost to Turkey. Now, the conditions under which Turkey can play this game is if the United States and Russia don't go to war with one another. If there were to be confrontation between the United States and Russia, if NATO were to commit troops against Russia, then Turkey will have no choice but to take sides. But until we get there, plenty of room for maneuver. Take the case of India now. India, on the one hand, needs to have a good working relationship with the United States and build an alliance type system that is not an alliance properly. It's really a system for purchasing weapons, partly because it needs to counterbalance China, partly because these weapon systems are a wonderful opportunity for rent seeking and for money making, not only for the industrial complex in the United States, but also in India. But on the other hand, India also needs to ensure that it remains an authority in its near abroad. And that means having good working relationships with China. India, again, needs to have excellent working relationships with Russia, with which it cooperates on a range of international issues. And therefore, India has no incentive at all to pick sides today. The conditions under which it needs to pick sides are very specific. 
So India, in the current international system, doesn't have to pick sides, doesn't want to pick sides. The conditions under which it will have to is in the case of U.S. war against China or U.S. war against Russia or very implausible today, but not implausible moving forward in the case of war between Russia and China. So, Matthias, I, I want to talk a second about Europe, because this is an interesting situation for, for Europe. We, we recently did an, uh, an episode on NATO enlargement. Finland and Sweden made a clear choice to push for NATO membership. And, and, and with Finland, it's super interesting because it's after 100 years of neutrality. So is there a role that Europe, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about the U.S., we've talked about Russia, we've talked about China, we've called this a tripod, but Europe is also a, a semi-superpower, not militarily, but certainly economically. Do you see any way to bring Europe into this conversation of somehow to, both in terms of to show how one can be not part of the tripod and yet be aligned? Do you see, how do you see the Nordics' decision to no longer be a fence-sitter? What, what, what do you see for the role of Europe? So the way I would put it is this. Europe is certainly an economic powerhouse. But when we say Europe, we don't mean a specific country. We mean a collection of countries with a range of interests. And the reason why Europe doesn't count as a pole in the international system. The reason why we cannot call Europe a great power is because there is a limit to how aligned European countries can be, first of all, and secondly, because a precondition for being a pole is to have military power. Europe, again, has countries in it that have some military power, but this is not military power to the extent that we attribute to the other great powers, or at least not military power with the intentionality of flexing muscle as a great power. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is Europe, remember, is part of the regional sphere of influence of the United States. Europe is not an independent power in the world. It depends on U.S. protection and U.S. leadership. Now, in a scenario in which Europe gets its act, its act together and it develops some strategic autonomy along the lines that President Macron proposes, then things may change. But things have not changed thus far. So Europe is in the camp firmly with the United States. And that's why I don't think we can call Finland and Sweden, the Nordics in general, fence-seaters before their applications to join NATO. They were under the U.S. security umbrella, but more importantly, they were members of what we call the liberal international order in ways that the large developing countries of the world never were. The Indias, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, Indonesia's never were. So Europe, of course, is now at a crossroads because it's confronting a regional war. And, you know, it's shown a lot of unity and it's shown a lot of willingness to support the Ukraine, at least up to now. We'll have to see what comes forward. But I don't think we see anything to suggest that in the next five to 10 years, 
Europe is going to become its own independent center of power in world politics. So, Matias, this this has been a a wonderful, all-encompassing conversation. Um, I'm just kind of left with one question, which is the elephant in the room. Is this is this all the U.S. fault because you we from moving from this unipolar uh, structure that that served us a lot after the Cold War, at least kind of organized things, and and re- recently and increasingly the weakness of the U.S.'s hand in international affairs seems to be the um, the kind of the trigger to this shift to non-alignment. What is your what is your thought on that? Okay, so. The way I would put it is this. It's hard for us to say it's the fault of the United States, because in order to say that, we'd have to make the argument that the only reason why unipolarity ended was because of misguided U.S. policies. Now, have there been misguided U.S. policies in the age of unipolarity? No doubts about it. I think the disasters in Iraq and in Afghanistan go a long way in helping account for why we saw what we saw. The mismanagement of the crisis, in particular in the last bit of the Bush administration, is partly to blame, sure. But there's something more fundamental at stake. The reason why great powers rise and fall is partly to do with their strategic choices. And the U.S. has made plenty of mistakes. But There's something for more fundamental, which is changes in global capital and global capitalism. The fact is that the way capital has moved from the North Atlantic to the East and to some extent to the South was going to transform China and transform China in ways that are absolutely remarkable and that our generation has managed to witness. So... I would hesitate to put all the blame on the conduct of U.S. policy. There's something to the effect of the global transformation that we've seen that is structural, that is very deep, and that I don't think anyone sitting at the White House could on their own control in an effective way. I actually have one one more question before we, before we say goodbye to Matias, which is, so you, you've made the argument that as long as we don't have a big war, we are going to see this continued preeminence of hedging among the large developing countries. Do you think we're heading for a for a conflict that's open and military between the large between the large countries? Peter, I hope not, but the problem with multipolar systems is that everything is so unstable. When you have a bipolar system like the one we had during the Cold War, things could get very unstable. Remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, but you could also produce peer competition that ensured that one country balanced the other. And when you have a balance of power, the risks of war go down. The problem now is that we don't have a balanced power. We have a multipolar system in which the distribution of power is highly unequal. The United States is far, far, far more powerful than China, which in turn is far, far more powerful than Russia. The problem is that this breeds a lot of instability. I mean, look at us discussing the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons in Europe. Who would have thought 10 years ago 
that this is where we'd be in 2023. And yet here we are. So it's a very risky world. And we simply don't know. Fire could catch very quickly as fire normally does. Now we'll let you go, Matthias. Thank you very much, Matthias Spector, for joining us on Altamar. It's been my complete pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listeners, uh, as Mooney hinted right at the beginning of the podcast, we wanted to have a personal word with you. Um, after 154 episodes and over the last six years, which has been wonderful, Altamar is going to take a summer break. We're going to um, sit on beaches, but we're also going to talk to friends. We're going to read some books. We're going to read great articles, and we're going to think about where this world is going because as I think this was the great guest before a, before a summer break for the very first time in six years. I mean, he really put a lot of questions about where we're going, how we're going to get there, and whether this world the way it is today can keep going in this, in this fashion or whether it's about to change even more radically than it has. So with that, we want to thank all of you for having listened during these years. And we hope that you'll have the patience to come back to us when we're back in September. Meanwhile, while we're in the sun with our books, you have 154 episodes to listen to. So please either browse a library or the website. There are amazing guests in our roster that will uh, come back into the present with what's happening in the world today. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, topics and countries and issues that have been uh, discussed in the past 154 episodes. So for sure, you have plenty of material for your summer break. That's right, guys. Well, I'll, I'll miss you over the summer, but I think we have lots of things to talk about and think about um, all of us and to come back with a you know, great series of episodes in the fall. So with that, you can listen to the past Altamore episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Do keep rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts because it does help us a lot. Uh, we'll send out one more free newsletter for this episode, and then we will see you back in September. Have a great summer.